Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. All right, I'm Adam Pierno. I am Generation X. And I'm Farah Bostic. I'm uh, the Jordan Catalano generation. <laughs> of course you are. Of course you are. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> it is lovely to be back when we last spoke, Farah. You gave us an overview of some of the ridiculous names for Generation X. True. And we looked at together in, in some detail where we are today with the story about uh, the generation known as millennials, the, the generation behind us. And we the conversation took us from their habits of uh, moving back into their homes, their family homes, or staying in the nest, uh, their challenges saving money or making money or being a functioning part of the economy as they were uh, prophesied to be. And the conversation turned towards when did that change? Because as you and I both recalled early on, there was this optimism about a hundred plus million people that were going to change the world. And now the narrative from newspapers and mainstream media outlets is, can you believe these damn kids? who, by the way, are in their 40s. Um, so I know you had started doing some digging into that narrative and looking at it over time and how it shifted. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's actually kind of surprising because I think I would have guessed that the shift would have really been noticeable in the aftermath of the financial crisis, that kind of 2008 to 2010 period. And... Um, and it looks like it was on a lag. So like it may have started then, like the kind of shift from super optimistic and feeling good about the future and thinking that government is a is a good thing <laughs> and um and um all of that, like th those that those things seem to kind of take a little while to sour. Um and so I think one of the things I started to do was sort of start with you know, a little bit of going back and forth in time, I guess, but sort of where did we begin when they first started describing millennials to us as this next greatest generation that was going to change the world and was right. so optimistic and felt so positively about institutions and government? Um, and then kind of where are we now? And then trying to kind of um, toggle back and forth until I could kind of figure out where the, where it all started to go So wrong. were you timeline jumping or were you working linear? path so i started with 2000 and then i looked at 2020 ish you know 2020 okay. to 2022 so into those headlines um, we talked about last time exactly and and then i started going well maybe like let's just look in kind of five-year increments and, and see what 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 did it look like in 2005 what did it look like in 2010 what did it look like in 2015 or so obviously you have other kind of big turning points of like 2016 was a big year in the world. <laughs> so there were a lot of things that happened around there. But I think, you know, the interesting thing is, um, you know, there there's a lot of, first of all, there's just a lot of surveying about this, about kind of people's attitudes to government in general. Yes. Um, and, and what they think government is for and what it's capable of doing. 
there are also kind of interesting things where you start to look at like the story wasn't always um you know even in those looking back at those periods of time even in 2000s ish 2000 2002 there were some surveys that were showing millennials as actually deeply skeptical about government but they weren't getting all the press the ones that were getting all the press was this like the next generation next greatest generation they're they're amazing they're so happy and i think um, that's a conversation <laughs> that we will have in a future episode about how how does that how, why does one story get prioritized over another story mm-hmm. and you know, we, I have some work to do on my end to figure, get into that a little bit and understand, you know, what's the, what's the trigger for one story getting picked up and another story being neglected or, or chosen not to, not to move right. forward is probably more accurately the, the case. Yeah. And, and I think some of it is like, you know, if you think back to that 2000 period, it was, um, you know, it's before 9-11, it's before the Iraq war, it's the end of that kind of 90s massive economic expansion for the for the US. It's peacetime, it's the internet, it's the rise of all these kind of new cool digital devices. That all starts to feel like destiny. And so that's part of it. I think the other part of it is also a little bit of a reaction to Gen X, who had been so negatively cast as being, you know, pessimists and slackers and cynics and um not participants um, and being like the products of, you know, divorce, drugs and disease. And so this was this was an, an, a chance to start over. And I think we talked about that a little bit um, in some of our other conversations about literally like welfare policies, starting benefits for people born after 1982. And like <laughs> there was just sort of literally this moment where government, well, that, that was a wash. <laughs> We're yeah. never getting those kids back. Screw them. Yeah. We're going to start over with the ones born like 82 on. Um, so I think it was just some of that. I think there was like an internal logic to the story that that made sense to people. And it was also just a hopeful story of like, this is this is the siege change. It's the end of history and everything from here on out is up and to the right. And see, we can see it in the kids. The negative connotations with watching Mr. Rogers and how that made us all think that we're unique and special and how we all need participation trophies and awards because we need to be like congratulated for any amount of work that we do and how that was a bad thing. I always thought it was funny because the generation that was criticizing us for watching Mr. Rogers is the generation that showed us Mr. Rogers and thinking that we're special and unique isn't necessarily a bad thing. The kids are also um, so optimistic. And so you had, you know, a story in 2000 that's like, you know, from from the, the that book that we started with of Millennials Rising, saying that like nine in 10 of the teens they surveyed said they trust and feel close to their parents, that um, they are reporting less conflict with their parents half say they trust government to do what's right all or most of the time which was twice as much as older people half believed that the real problem was that their parents weren't tough enough on them (laughs) you know that like um they needed kind of tougher rules against misbehavior in the classroom and society at large and but in general were trusting of um of government and large national institutions to to do the right thing um if you ask them who's going to improve schools the environment, cut the crime rate, they would say totally unironically, teachers, government, and police. 
you know, the, the people the, in charge. The people we've That's chosen what... to be in charge. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, they're, they're thinking that like, they're going to be, um, you know, more likely to participate in, in civic life. They're going to spend more time on careers, government and technology than on, you know, kind of uh, religion or inner, inner world stuff, the stuff that the boomers were being kind of uh, made fun of for. <laughs> and they <laughs> and still they also yeah exactly and um yeah some of those religions have taken a turn yeah. um and you know they really thought that later on in life they would be keeping up with politics and voting more than their parents do now which and by that, the way hasn't turned out to be the case but right in any and how old were they when these surveys were you know i know millennials covers 50 years depending on what <laughs> what survey you're looking at but for <laughs> For the meaty part of the curve, how yeah. old were they when they were given these types of responses? Because this the, is important. Yeah, I mean, these are these are surveys that are done in like 99, 2000. So they're like 16, 17, 18, you yeah. know. Yeah. So when you're, it, I think it's important to talk about the idea that I have uh, kids that are early teenagers, 12 and 14, and watching them go from like, oh, I'm in elementary school, whatever my teacher said is the gospel. Mm -hmm. I trust my teacher, the principals, the authority to high school where they're a little bit more like, I don't know about this guy. I don't know about <laughs> this, this person. Dad, the teacher said this, is this what you're right? You know, can this be like, I think there's something wrong with this person. Um, that sort of skepticism that creeps in as people get older and become independent thinkers. Mm -hmm. And when you're getting survey data from high school students that are eager to get permission to vote. Yep. Of course, it seems like you're going to vote because honestly, why wouldn't you until you have a job or until you have to take your kid to the dentist on that Tuesday or until whatever other 50 things comes up that you're like, I don't know, I don't need to vote in the local election um, <laughs> yeah. or whatever excuse you make or whatever real problem you have. Mm -hmm. So it, I, I think it's, mo it's interesting to that so many people sank their teeth into it because we, yeah. you and I have spent some time looking at those surveys uh, for the generation ahead and the generation behind too, to see right. if it, it varied. Well, and, and that also was interesting because obviously Millennials Rising is looking at some publicly available uh, survey data. They're also doing their own survey data. And that was a pretty, you know, I mean, a robust size sample, but in a very geographically specific place. So they, they were doing most of their research in and around McLean, Virginia, particular kind of socio economic status, particular kind of demographic profiles. Um, and so it's possible, <laughs> probable that they've got a certain kind of sample bias there. You also have, uh, you know, a kind of ongoing survey that the Harvard Kennedy School Institute of Politics has done. They're mainly surveying college age students. So they're a little bit older, um, but they tend to just, they were running a little more, um, a little more skeptical than the millennials rising data was showing. Mm -hmm. And so some of that may be millennials rising is more looking at high school students at the time, as opposed to college students. And there's yeah, just sort of a thing that happens when you're you trained in critical thinking. Yes. And well, and also you're not living at home, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, right, right. you know, there's, there's just some kind of life stage changes that happen there, but it's, it is interesting to see that kind of that, that story really took hold that like these were optimistic, trusting um, and, and kind of rule following people and that they were therefore going to be ambitious and high performing because they had been ambitious and high performing as children and the whole kind of like, 
over-programmed extracurriculars, you know, helicopter parenting, baby on board, all of that stuff was going to carry on with them into their adulthood. And so that was sort of the claim that was staked in, in 2000 was like, this is who they are as people. And that's how they're going to be most likely. And now, obviously, you know, in, in fairness to the authors of Millennials Rising, they did hedge a little bit and say, like, unless something comes along to knock them off course, yeah. they're the next gen greatest generation. Yes. And we should caveat, like, it is not fair to for the for us to expect that they could predict the future because no. it, to my knowledge that's not possible no, uh, still not possible so who knows if you know if there is no 911 if there is no dot com bubble if there is mm -hmm. no great recession if there is no 2016 if there is no pandemic who the hell knows maybe right. the trajectory stays on this up and up course and america is the sunny day every day sesame street land yeah. Um, who knows? The interesting thing, though, that I think happened in that period was that the kind of narrative about millennials didn't immediately shift. It didn't shift away from them being essentially optimistic and trusting and, and all of that. Um, instead, our interpretation, our like the, the collective kind of media environments interpretation of them shifted. Mm. So it went from being the kids are all right, the next greatest generation to what a bunch of morons like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> millennials these days that were job hopping around uh, one or two years, but there's actually financial data and statistics that prove that it's actually far more financially savvy to do that rather than to just kind of harbor out in the long term at a company, kind of like how the baby boomer and Generation X used to. Unfortunately, this is the type of environment and economic climate we're in that we're, we're forced as a generation to work as contractors rather than full-time employees for the long haul. Give me the example of when do, when do you start seeing that? I think that takes, that, that, to be honest, and that, that is something we talked about in our last conversation, I think it starts to sour when the kids graduate from college and start to enter the workforce. Yeah. Where like that, this greatest generation, of, gosh, they, they want an awful lot of attention. Yeah, that wave <laughs> of media about quoting HR professionals and- uh, what are they called? SHRM is the organization. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the big one. Yeah. That is um, doing surveys and doing studies and essentially selling information that says, whoa, we have this new type of workforce and this new type of person that's coming into the workforce. And I know we told you they were optimistic, but that means they have high expectations. And that means if you're a boomer and you're used to going this fast, you better change your expectations of them. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I think, again, it's it's a story that's much more about boomers than about millennials. Like, it's, it's again, a story that's like, hey, you boomers, you were expecting these kids to be yeah. so well behaved. And but actually, they're going to ask you a lot of questions and they're going to not walk into the job at 21 years old knowing how to perform the job, which, of course, I don't know why anyone thought that was going to be otherwise. But um, <laughs> but yes, I think I think that was where it went from being, oh, you know, and, and I see it with my I see it with my own friends as they talk about their Gen Z and Gen Alpha kids of like, they're going to save us and they're just amazing. And oh, are they, you know, aren't they wonderful? And it's like they haven't moved out of the house yet. Um, they're generally good kids. They're high performing, all of that stuff, because you're affluent and involved in their upbringing and their their education and everything else. And this is going to shift when they decide that they need to move back in with you for a couple of years to save money or when you know, their career plan doesn't work out or when there's a recession or totally. whatever happens. Um, so right now you're feeling great about them. And in a few years, you're going to be like, gosh, when I was their age, I did things differently. And why aren't they doing it like that?
and every generation of parents has that experience. Like Everyone. Yeah, recognizing that my way was the right way and their way was wrong, even though when I was in it, <laughs> I didn't know if I was doing, I had, still don't know if I'm making good decisions or not. Right, exactly. Yes. <laughs> but the idea that the articles are written for the media consumer, which is mm -hmm. pre predominantly boomers at that point, mm -hmm. it's implied, but it's not explicit. Right. So I, I'm thinking of a certain category of Forbes articles or, you know, those types. Last time we talked about the New York Post and there's a thread that runs through those publications that is like, dear reader, you know, mm -hmm. here's, we know who you are and here's, here's the information that to your taste and perspective. So it's, it, a lot of those articles about millennials in the workforce, for example, where that starts to shift are framed in that way like whoa this is a problem for you dear reader mm -hmm. but it doesn't that no none of these authors ever explicitly say there are places where they'll say like for older workers this means that or that but it doesn't say like and we're, therefore we're steering the entire editorial towards your perception and how it impacts you and so part of the narrative shift has to be accounted for of like who who do we want to be the receiver of you know who are we writing for and therefore what is the story that they will most likely read and this is pre like clickbait but yeah yeah but also kind of early days of what would become clickbait i i think yeah it's it's definitely audience service to you know look i think at the point in time we're talking about 2000 to 2010 these newsrooms are dominated by boomers. And so they have their own anxieties about it. And they are projecting that their boomer audiences also have these anxieties. I think one of the other things that shifts is it goes from potential to actual. You know, when when they're kids still, when they're not out in the workforce, when they're still in college or in high school, all of this is potential. And it all, you know, it's, it's all very sunny. It's also like, good job, boomers. You raised a, a, the, the next greatest, greatest generation. Um, and so it's validating. <laughs> um, and then it's like, oops, okay, well, now they're actually in the workforce. Now they're actually of voting age. Right. Um, now they're actually thinking about their political and economic futures and what, you know, what kind of family building they want to do and whether they want to be homeowners and what kind of active participants in the economy they're going to be and all of that. And that's where people start getting itchy. Yeah. And, and I think you also see it because, you know, we did have, you know, the 2000s and on have been periods of quite a bit of political tumult as well. And so trying to predict what this group of people that was 80 plus million people were going to be like as economic and political actors was important. And, and I think this is actually a thing that isn't really the subject of this podcast, but is a thing that I've been obsessed with for quite some time, which is the use of survey data as a means of predicting the future, yeah. which is not what it is. It's just like in a <laughs> snapshot in time, what do you, how does someone respond to some questions? Can we, <laughs> and we? I'm okay with uh, a tangent here because the amount of time that people take survey data and try to use that as some sort of projection, even when the survey is about how do you think you will, or what do you plan to do is such a load of horseshit. I can't even predict, like I brought a salad for lunch today 
And there's only a 50-50 chance I'm going to go and get that salad out of the refrigerator and not (laughs) go downstairs and get a hamburger. Like (laughs) even with the best intentions on a short time scale, people have free will and weirdness happens all the time. So to take survey data of, I don't care how robust the sample is and try to extrapolate that into going forward is really a scary. Yes. To really, I mean, it's maybe it's the best data you have, but it's not perfect. Yeah. And and these surveys aren't even asking people to project about what they think they're going to do in the future. They're literally just asking (laughs) them like right now, what do you think about X? (laughs) And, and so then it's like, well, this is who they are as people. It's cast in amber. They will never be any different. This is how they are. And I think that that's the other thing that I feel like is, is fascinating about looking at the, at the evolution of it, because it is at every point in time, it's like, this is who they are. Like it is immutable. This is who they are. And then five years later, we ask the same or similar questions and their answers are a little bit different. And we just forget that, okay, you know, they used to think this and now they think this. Now what I hear about millennials is that they are less willing to do some of the things that the generations before them did, waiting to have children um, you know, waiting to jump into education, school loans, debt, taking more time to travel, that they are more um, conscious of their communities, the people around them kind of banding together as we talk about, you know, even like politics, how they aren't necessarily drawing party lines, they're more accepting more liberal and willing to just embrace change. So instead of reporting it as a trend of like declining trust in government over a 20 year period, it's like, we just forget that we ever said that they trusted government. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden it's like, uh oh, we woke up and asked some millennials some questions, and it turns out they think a military junta is a great idea, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Like, right. And right. it's like, first of all, no. And secondly, like that that story should be a story about a, a trend line on the decline as opposed to a trend line on the on the rise. It's also not terribly surprising. Like, yes, young kids living at home in an affluent suburb of the DC area whose parents are probably government workers of one stripe or another and do pretty well for themselves. Of course, they think the government's great. The government is how they have food on their table. Like that's how they have a roof over their heads. Um, That's where my dad works. Like my mom works there. So sure, they feel good about it. Ask them 20 years later when they're on their own and they're not themselves government contractors and they may have a different set of opinions. Gosh, I don't know why. Um, Like just (laughs) people change, times change, context changes is all of those things change. And, um, and so it's, it it is just very interesting, because there's this like, well, they say they're going to vote more than their parents. It turns out nobody votes more than baby boomers, by the way. Um, Baby boomers are the the votingest group of people. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you my theory for that. They're the first group of people who got to vote at 18. Mm. 
So, so that, like, like an early habit. They started earlier. And yeah. it's just the, the greatest predictor of voting is registration. If you're registered to vote, you'll vote. It's like an 80% incidence. So there's also it, the hardest thing is getting them registered. It, in the case <laughs> of boomers, they also have there's a there's a cohort that has more time. They are retired, which oh, they are, yeah. which many of them are able to be, which as a Gen Xer, maybe I will never retire. Um, <laughs> as a millennial, you almost certainly will not. Yeah. Um, so they have right. time on their hand to go on a Tuesday morning and vote. Or, right. or to handle the mail order or whatever you're doing. Yeah, exactly. And like that that also has ever been thus. Seniors always have kind of turned out to vote in greater proportions than younger people because they have the time. Yeah. My high school economics teacher, Dr. Greco, used to refer to them as the gray panthers. And he would say that they would get into their Buicks and roll down to the polls. Um, <laughs> it's quite a picture. So, yeah, so he definitely painted a strong I can smell picture. the interior of the Buick. You really can. Yeah, Ooh. smells like cigarettes, yeah. Yeah. And wool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like they seem to kind of potter along for actually quite a bit of time, like by even in 2010 surveys are showing that like at that point, so it's 2010, 18 to 32 year olds are giving the government more positive performance ratings, strongly favor a significant role for government. Um, they're like, you know, and so then you have sort of reporting that that's, that sums it up by saying something like, um, this this uh, Heart Research Associates survey from uh, from 2010, millennials' distinctly pro-government outlook may well be a leading indicator of a nascent rebound in public confidence in government. Oh yeah, that didn't turn out to be true, did it? No. <laughs> and yet, you know, you'd also ask them about like, are you worried about whether the government is managed well or spends money efficiently? And they would still say, actually, yeah, I, I think it's often poorly managed and doesn't spend money very efficiently. So like, you know, I think it's you know, so you're asking kind of and I mean this in a positive sense, naive people, what they think is possible. And they're saying, well, I think like good things are possible, but I'm not unaware <laughs> that they're not always very good at their jobs. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the groundwork exists for them to start thinking more cynically or more skeptically about government over time. And you have like, you know, attitudes that so like in the same survey, 62% of millennials at the time said we, you know, we believe we need a strong government to handle today's complex economic problems. Um, and half thought that government should do more to solve problems and, um, you know, significantly higher approval rating of the federal government, significantly um, more confidence in the federal government's ability to solve problems. Um, and this was a real sort of generation gap in confidence. And so, again, you know, you look at that snapshot in time, they're 18 to 32 in, in 2010. And the belief and the narrative is, this is just who they are. They're just so much more confident in government yeah. than everybody else. And what's the choice? You know, when you are it's like a kid being afraid of the boogeyman, but saying, oh, but my parents are sleeping downstairs. That's the only, I mean, that's the only security, you know, mm -hmm. so if you're 18 and you say, well, the government is, is responsible for handling these things. So I believe that even though maybe it's not managed as well as it could be, it could be better and they could fix it. Mm -hmm. What's the alternative? What are you going to say? Like, oh no, they can't, we're all screwed. It's the world's going to end every single day. Right. Nobody, and any, the framing of the questions won't allow for that type of response anyway. Right. Well, and, and if you look at the age band and you look at, so let's say it's, it's the 2010 survey, these are 18 to 32 year olds. 32 year olds in 2010 may have mortgages and children. Mm -hmm. They may have suffered during the economic crisis. Uh, but the 18 year olds, 
they were 15. Yeah. You know, they, they, that wasn't coming home for them in the same way. In the headlines that we looked at last week, there is the undertone of millennials who came of age during the Great Recession, who mm-hmm. witnessed their parents lose it all, who X, Y, or Z, you know, like mm-hmm. it gets told as if they came through the Great Recession like people came through the, the Great Depression mm-hmm. uh, generations earlier. But you're right. If you're if you're 18, there's a there is a wide swath of people who felt some pain but didn't have a direct experience one way or the other, because even though it was terrible, I mean, the government did sweep in and, and steer it towards, you know, less, less horrible outcomes for the majority of people once they, once they got control of the wheel. Right. So I wonder if you look at the sample and I haven't looked at the data in this way, but I wonder if you could look at it, how many people were in that younger bracket versus the older bracket. And that mm-hmm. accounts for the 62% versus the 38%, right? right? Yeah. No, I think you, you would have a lot more kind of uh, texture around this if you even just cut these generations into two chunks. Like, you know, the 20 year gaps, generally speaking, 20, 22 years, you know, have one group in the first 10, 11 years and one group in the second 10, 11 years, because like, it's just completely different to be 32 than it is to be 18. And And what are you worried about when you're 18 is like, can I afford my books? Right. Yes. Which is scary when you're 18 and legitimately so, but when you're 32 and maybe you have a mortgage or rent or a baby. Right. Holy crap. All of a sudden those, those problems feel more real. Sure. And so it should come as no surprise that in that 2010 survey, 17% uh, more millennials than non-millennials were inclined to favor governmental involvement in making college affordable. Yep. There you go. There's because the, there's the split in tuition. The yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, you know, it, but in general, even in 2010, even with, you know, all of the things that had happened in the 2000s and, um, and all of that, they were feeling pretty good about things. Now, some of that may also be like, the Obama effect, right? That that sort of younger millennials were feeling like, okay, the the Bush years were rough, the financial crisis was rough, the Iraq War was rough, but you know, hope and change, and you know, first black president. So maybe that's part of what's like keeping things aloft here. Mm-hmm. Hard to say, but I also think some of it is just life stage stuff. They they have not the whole cohort hasn't aged into full adulthood yet. Yeah, um, and so you're still talking about kids, and. Um, and bless their hearts, they tend to be optimistic. Well, we need it. <laughs> we do. But, but you can't plan for it to continue in perpetuity. Exactly. So then you start to see the decline first getting reported in like 2015. And it really just goes from being like generally pretty optimistic, pretty positive to eh, it's a bit of a mixed bag. And so now you've got the, this is where like the Harvard Kennedy School survey is interesting. And they start asking people about how confident they were in the US judicial system's ability to quote, fairly judge people without bias for race and ethnicity. 18 to 29 year olds were split. So 49% said they had not much or no confidence and an equal proportion said they had some or a lot. Mm -hmm. So now you start to see things splitting. Now, again, it's 2015. So 18 to 29 is on the younger end of millennials at that point, I think. We start at, let's see, what does it go? 82 to 2002. So by 2015, eh, no, that's still kind of the middle of the of the younger end um, of millennials at that point in time. So it's kind of, kind of right in the middle of, of the millennials. Yeah. So then you look at like um, their 
their uh, their trust in other things though had started to improve <laughs> so they had slightly increased trust in the president the military the supreme court the un um but there were lower levels of trust seen for the federal government and congress um weirdly like trust in wall street had rebounded trust in the media was about flat but a little bit up um and so like it, it's it's less rosy than we'd been seeing before. It's a much more of a mixed bag. And then we get this survey from a, a different part of Harvard <laughs> conducted by someone who I think is extremely problematic, uh, Yasha Monk and yeah. I Peter mean, that Fu. Doesn't, that doesn't help all the different sources Just within Robert. sources within sources. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't help the narrative. Yes, they did. So this he's at Harvard at the time. Time. This other um, uh, Roberta Foa was at University of Melbourne. They did a study that they published in the Journal of Democracy in 2016. And they did it in North America, Western Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. And they discovered some alarming things. Um, now, without having gone whole hog reading through the survey instrument and all of their analysis, they come back with. Um, 19% of millennials, only 19% of millennials in the U.S. believed that a military takeover isn't legitimate in a democracy, whereas older citizens, it was 43% believed that that was not legitimate in a democracy. Um, a third of U.S. millennials saw civil rights as absolutely essential compared with 41% among older Americans. A quarter of U.S. millennials didn't think that free elections were that important to democracy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the, the headline <laughs> of the article in which this data is shared is... Uh, it's wild, is it? isn't it? Harvard research suggests that an entire global generation has lost faith in democracy. And the, and the analysis by the author, Gwen Guilford, these surveys and the way they're written are sh always shocking because it will say things like, oh, let me see if I can find a quote here. Uh, they are cynical. Where is that? Um, they are more cynical about the value of democracy as a political system, less hopeful that anything they might do that they do might influence public policy um, is a quote from the from the white paper itself. And they didn't say that. You asked them a series of, of Likert scale questions and yes, no questions. Mm -hmm. And in, in some cases, you have to admit they may not even understand what their answers add up to or the mm -hmm. narrative that it could contribute to, but it gets projected out in this way that is, what year is this, 2016? Yep, 2016. Yeah, so this is clickbait time. Yes, yes it is. And so that and headline is like, oh, I have to read this article. And exactly. That's, that's where the narrative gets shocking all of a sudden, right? Exactly. And and the things that they're doing is saying like, okay, they're much less likely or much more likely than older age cohorts to say these things. But they're still like, it's, you know, it's still small proportions of people. And the other thing is that the age breaks are like 16 plus. So it's like 16 to 24, 25 to 34, 35 to 44. By, by 2016, you know, 16 to 24, I guess, is the, the bottom the, the, the youngest millennials you can talk to. And so they're the most likely to say that having a democratic political system is a bad or very bad way to run this country. And, you know, okay, so 
once again, my qualitative tendencies showing, my reaction to that is to go, did they understand the question? <laughs> like, right. what, what do they think that means? What is a democratic political system in their and, minds? And do people on that entire age spectrum understand that question the same way with the same right. context, especially across all those geographies? Mm -hmm. And what your experiences with a quote unquote democratic system and what is actually a democracy are varied in that, right. that subset. Well, and, and the other part of it is even comparing like U.S. to Europe, which is how one of the one of the charts that's presented in the piece uh, works is is fascinating, too, because like a democratic political system in the U.S. is pretty much unique. The only other country in the world that had a constitution like ours was the Philippines. Mm -hmm. No joke. And that's because we wrote it for them. So, um, <laughs> you know, no one else has our constitutional system. Nobody else elects leaders the way we do. And so a democratic political system in the US is just fundamentally different than in a parliamentary system or in a constitutional monarchy or any of these other kinds of systems in Western Europe. Right. So we're comparing apples to oranges. And so seeing that like Europeans are more, um, you know, less likely to say it's a bad or very bad way to run this country also speaks to the fact that they live in coalition style governments. <laughs> Yeah. You know? um, they have more explicit rules about representation. They have, you know, they have social services and social safety nets. You know, they're not as heavily militarized. Like there's a bunch of things that make their systems different than ours. So I'm not terribly surprised to see the U.S. a little less democratically inclined than um, than than Europe, for example. But we're not talking about the same systems like right. in run this country. They're talking about the countries they live in, not about democracy in general. Not globally, just the concept of democracy. Right. Which right. we don't have an agreed upon definition of. No, no. It's like pornography, <laughs> right? It's like, I know it when I see it. Well, and, and how many of those 16 year olds are like going to school where they were told that it's not a democracy, it's a republic and, you know, all of that kind of <laughs> that kind of stuff. Like, do they again, do they even know what they're answering? Yeah. But this was massive clickbait in 2016. I mean, the, this particular piece came out right after the, the election. Um, it was the year of of um, uh, of both Brexit and the, the Trump election. And there was just a void into which people felt that they needed to pour their explanations for why these unexpected expected things happened yeah um when like you know one of the simplest answers for why brexit happened is extremely low voter turnout like yeah. just extreme people just yeah. didn't think it was going to happen yeah. they didn't care yeah. they didn't show up yeah disinformation and low voter turnout there's That's also how that one happened this this piece is also maybe so uh, i want to be fair to the researchers and like i think maybe what they you can be fair to the researchers well <laughs> I don't I think, think that Yasha think Monk this, is acting in good faith, but no, that's no, that, that's fine. You're, you're probably right, but this this article in particular doesn't represent data, survey data, the way we normally would. So they do that thing, like ad agencies are guilty of this all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. It says only about a third of U.S. millennials see civil rights as quote absolutely essential in a democracy, and what that means is on a five or seven point scale. Normally, how that would be presented is you would take top two box, you would take absolutely yeah. essential or somewhat essential or whatever the second choice right. is, and you'd factor both of those together, knowing that there's some mm -hmm. variance in people's comprehension. But what this article does, which I think is bad faith, is they just take that top answer because it's a lower number or a more shocking number to make their point that they're constructing, again, for a particular audience type, a reader of courts, that they want to have a takeaway. Now they're they're not just reporting; they are they are 
sculpting a narrative. Mm-hmm. And, that, well, and that's where that's yeah. where it's like, ugh, how much you're right? How much how fair can we be to the researcher when it's presented in this way? Right. And, and I think the the thing that they did, I mean, when you when you click into the actual article that um, Monk and Foa published, they also tended to take top box and yeah. only top two okay. box if it told the story they wanted to tell, which was that um, there was increasing support for authoritarianism in the U.S., particularly among young people. And and I think, you know, there's, you know, look, I, I think they're trying to explain something that's happening in the culture and looking for evidence where they see it and it isn't it isn't not alarming and it has that for a double negative like it, it is sort of like wow that's a that's more people than you would like yeah who um we all agree it's not thing. good yeah yeah <laughs> yeah for sure and you know and so that i think but that moment in time that the 2016 kind of crises political crises in the u.s and the uk shifted the story officially like that became like the real pivot point for the media about thinking about whether young adults have trust in government or not so then when we get to 2020 pew research is showing young adults saying being just sort of pessimistic about lots of things like in general seeing others as selfish exploitative and untrustworthy <laughs> you know um 73 percent of 18 to 29 year olds in 2020 although if that's 2020, yep. So it's still still millennials. Most of the time, people just look out for themselves. 73% agree yeah. with that statement. Yeah. Um. And and they're more pessimistic than their older millennial cohorts, as well as young uh, young Gen Xers and Boomers. Boomers are actually, you know, the least likely to say that most people can't be trusted, which is interesting. Yeah. Um. You wouldn't think that from their political behavior. <laughs> um. But also their their confidence in military, religious, and police, and business leaders is generally speaking lower than older cohorts across the board until you start getting into scientists, journalists, and college or university professors. So younger people have still a bit more kind of trust in experts, I guess I would call those people, um, but much less, um, you know, 22% deficit for the 18 to 29 year olds versus 30 to 49 and 50 plus for the military, for example, mm -hmm. um, much less than 21% deficit on religious leaders, 18% on police officers, 16 on business leaders. So you just get this like, you know, change in which institutions they trust. And I think that probably a lot of that has to do with, as I will continue to say until I stop saying things, uh, context and life stage. What a surprise. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, all the research that I did uh, about millennials when I, you know, in the 12 to 16 range, it kept coming back to that same idea where, mm -hmm. where it was about life stage. It was about what are the problems they have in front of them. It is not about an age range that is spans 14 years and covers every part of the country or world. If in some of the global research, it's about like, no, I have a newborn. No, I, have a, right. I just have a mortgage. Uh, no, I'm, I need to pay my rent. No, I need to afford my books and tuition. Right. Uh, those are the problems people have. And that's how they answer these questions. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's not a function of what, you know, again, it's not a function of when you were born. It's a function of what you're going through right now. Yeah. And what your experience yeah. is right now. And that's how, that's the frame you have for any, any survey instrument, even the most carefully crafted and reported one, it goes through the filter of humans, which makes them flawed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
flawed, but you know, I think even it's, it just is, it's highly contextual. It's like, what's on my mind at the point in time that you asked me. And this is, this is always sort of the, you know, one of the things that, um, that I learned when I was working on, um, <laughs> soap operas is that like the weather in a market might indicate, might be a predictor of whether people watched a soap opera. So like, like on a rainy, rainy day, yeah, yeah, on a rainy day, you're not outside with your kids or outside walking or outside d doing the shopping or whatever else you're doing. You're inside folding laundry, and so that's what's on TV. Yeah, so it's not necessarily um, necessarily a representation of the a result of the writing or the casting or the storyline. Yeah. It's just like <laughs> hey, it rained. It's the same yeah. thing with football and baseball ratings. Yeah. You know, like you can exactly. see in cold weather places, the ratings are higher. In LA, they're lower. It's mm -hmm. I can be outside at the beach. Right. Right. Why would I, exactly. why would I want to be in a dark room watching a football game? Well, and that, that was when I, I just, I just learned yesterday that, um, statewide races, like in Texas, they do their debates on Friday nights. Yeah. Cause um, they don't want people to watch them. Yes. Because everyone's at the football. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're watching high school football. You're not watching, not at home watching Beto debate, Greg, Ab you know, whatever his name is, Greg Abbott. So like so much of this is just like, if you, it's almost like, um, you know, it's, it's the NPR um, recording, recording, you know, sound test thing. What did you have for breakfast? Like, it's almost like you should ask people, yeah. how's your day going yeah. and just get them to score. Like, this is a bad day. It's a good day. And then, then ask them the rest of the questions. That's not a bad <laughs> idea actually. Yeah. And then you could filter by like, Oh, having a bad day. I can at least look at it for people that are having a pretty decent day. You know, it's like mm -hmm. an NPS for your day. Right. Want people with an eight or better. <laughs> yes. Filter the data through that. And then you might actually get some, some interesting um, ways of sorting it. That isn't just solely about like, well, this is just who they are. And because they they were forever. born in 1982. Therefore, this is who they will be forever. Um, but I think it, it is it is interesting because what what I think frustrates me about this whole thing is just that it is a story of a trend line. It is a story of people growing up and going through various life stages and experiencing different things and the economy changes and politics changes and society changes and they change with it. Yeah. And so it's never this like cast in stone thing that millennials are like this and so shall ever be this way. No, and that this is why I constantly say it's it's astrology for marketers and yeah. it's about as useful as that. Like yeah, it's never the same you know, river twice. No, not ever. I think, you know, we started with current headlines and this was a great look at the pivot point in that narrative. Mm -hmm. And I think when we next get together, we should go back, talk about the ur text, the source of this, the beginning points of this narrative and mm -hmm. take a deep dive into that wonderful, um, what we think is the the source text for the narrative that was birthed about millennials, uh, yes. millennials rising. What do you think? I think that's great. I also have a few theories about like what fed their narrative construct, because there were some things happening right before um, that are definitely worth noting. Excellent. Well, until next time. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> On the next episode of In the Demo. Farah and Adam find what they believe to be the source text behind the great American millennial myth. Could this really be it? I'm your robot host, Eliza. Please be kind. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Piano, with support from the Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, under the Creative Commons license. Go to InTheDemoPodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information. 